So obviously some of us are going to when leaders lead. So we are expecting warfare. We've already received some warfare. And uh, maybe some of you who uh, have already uh, gotten some warfare today. And I figured, you know, I told Brian, Brian, you're teaching on spiritual warfare. I can't wait till this series is over so we can stop experiencing it at our house. And I'm speaking this morning on the problem of evil. Because we like to, I think we're always trying to insulate ourselves from evil. This morning I was reading Luke chapter 17 and Jesus said offenses must come. And I'm always a little taken back by offenses. Like, why would you do that? How could they do that? You know, like, I want to psychoanalyze Hitler. Why would you do this? What happened in your childhood? Can we talk about this? But you know, there are some people that are just bent on evil. They are attracted to evil. They prefer evil to good. And I think that as Christians, sometimes we just don't understand that. But even in the world right now, what we're seeing is there are people who are refusing to accept the evil, wicked nature of sin. I think that's part of the problem. We don't want to say sin is evil. We don't want to say that sin is a gateway drug, do we? I was one time sitting on a plane next to a man and he's like, you know, beer is a gateway drug, but pot isn't. And I was like, you know, I beg to differ. My dad had this ministry to hippies. And I I just talked about, no, I know people personally that I've talked to that will tell you that pot is a gateway drug. But yes, I would agree that beer can be just as much a gateway drug. Sin is a gateway drug to evil. In Romans 7, 13, Paul talks about the exceeding wickedness of sin. And in that chapter 7, he talks about those who don't want to acknowledge the nature of sin, that sin is evil. But sin in its most basic form is rebellion against God's rule. It is rebellion against God ruling and reigning or telling me what to do. Secondly, rebellion against God's rules. I don't like what God said. I don't don't want to be ruled by what God says is right and wrong. And finally, it's a rebellion against God's ways, the way that God does things. Sin is man wanting to be his own God. And because he wants to be his own God, he wants to do away with God, the concept of God, or change the nature of God. I want God to be more like me, not me to be more like God. God is good. And so sin, which is evil in its nature, is a move away from God. The further the distance from God, the more wicked, the more evil. Cold is measured by the distance from heat. Darkness is measured by the distance from light. So evil can be measured by the distance from God and God's goodness. But whenever there is evil, there's three basic questions that arise. One is what makes sin evil? Two is why does God allow it? Have you ever wondered that yourself? Lord, 
Why is this taking so long? Why are you letting things go to this place? Three, where is God when evil is happening? Though these questions will never be fully answered until heaven, some of the answers are apparent in the life of King Manasseh and Ammon. So the first question is, why is sin evil? Number one, sin is evil because of its seductive and deceptive nature. Sin promises fulfillment. Think about Eve in the garden. Satan said to Eve, in the day that you eat it, you'll be like God. You'll be fulfilled. You'll know good from evil. But we find that when she bit into that forbidden fruit, it was just the opposite. She recognized her own deficiencies. She recognized her own um, sin and sin nature, and she fell, and she was distanced from God, and death took a hold in Eve. And from that day on, she began to die. It is seductive in that it preys upon the innocent. In Luke chapter 17, going back to that chapter, we're told that it goes after the little ones, to defile the little ones. Uh, I know that the tobacco companies want to get the ages from 12 to 15 to smoke. Because if they can hook the ages between 12 to 15, they can get them addicted to cigarette smoking and craving it for the rest of their lives. There's a seductive quality. Sin lies, and lying is a sin, because lying is a departure from the truth. So sin lies, it's seductive. I want to read you a poem that my mother used to read to me. Maybe you'll recognize it. And this is one of my favorite poems to hear. Don't ask me why. It was one of my mother's favorite poems to read. I know why. She was trying to warn me. Will you step into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. Tis the prettiest little parlor that you ever did spy. The way into my parlor is up a winding stair, and I have many pretty things to show you when you are there. Oh, no, no, said the little fly. To ask me is in vain, for who goes up your winding stair can ne'er come down again. I'm sure you must be weary, dear, with soaring up so high. Will you rest upon my little bed, said the spider to the fly. There are pretty curtains drawn round, the sheets are fine and thin, and if you like to rest a while, I'll snugly tuck you in. Oh, no, this is my answer to the breaking through video. Oh, no, no, said the little fly. For I've often heard it said, they never, never wake again who sleep upon your bed, said the cunning spider to the fly. Dear friend, what shall I do to prove the warm affection I've always felt for you? I have within my pantry good store of all that's nice. I'm sure you're very welcome. Will you please to take a slice? Oh, no, no, said the little fly. Kind sir, that cannot be. I've heard what's in your pantry, and I do not wish to see. Sweet creature, said the spider. You're witty and you're wise. How handsome are your gauzy wings. How brilliant are your eyes. I have a little looking glass upon my parlor shelf. If you'll step in one moment, dear... You shall behold yourself. 
I thank you, gentle sir, she said, for what you've pleased to say, and bidding you good morning, now I'll call another day. The spider turned him round about and went into his den, for well he knew the silly fly would soon be back again. So he wove a subtle web in a little corner sly and set his table ready to dine upon the fly. Then he came out to his door again and merrily did sing, Come hither, come hither, pretty fly, with the pearl and silver wing. Your robes are green and purple, there's a crest upon your head. Your eyes are like the diamond bright, but mine are dull as lead. Alas, alas, how very soon this silly fly, hearing this wily flattering word, came slowly flitting by. With buzzing wings she hung aloft, then nearer and nearer drew, thinking only of her brilliant eyes and green and purple hue, thinking only of her crested head, poor foolish thing, at last. Up jumped the cunning spider and fiercely held her fast. He dragged her up his winding stair into his dismal den within his little parlor, but she ne'er came out again. And now, dear children or women at Joyful Life, who made this story hear or read, to idle, silly, flattering words, I pray you ne'er give heed. Unto an evil counselor, close heart and ear and eye, and take a lesson from this tale of the spider and the fly. Sin is seductive. It tantalizes, entices, and flirts. It is always recruiting. And once it gets you in its grip, it does not want to let you go. We're told in Second Chronicles 33, verses 9, and Second Chronicles, sorry, and Second Kings twenty one nine, that Manasseh seduced Judah to do even more evil. Secondly, sin is evil because it is corrupting. We're told in Second Kings twenty one sixteen that all of Judah was affected by Manasseh's sins. You see, Jerusalem was filled with bloodshed, and sin pollutes everything it. Touches. There's a philosophy that is going about in our culture today that sin only destroys the sinner. Yes, we know that the sinner is destroyed by sin, but sin also hurts those who care about the person who is being destroyed. Sin hurts everyone. Sin affects job performance. It endangers those who are working with the one who is addicted to drugs, the one who is smoking pot, the one who is drinking, who is an alcoholic, who's not careful in their performance. It endangers those who come in contact with the sinner. It endangers those who depend on the one who is sinning. I was reading about a man um, he picked up these um, two men. He saw that they were at their campground. They had been flooded out by the rain. And so he picked up these two men because he saw that they were in distress. He took them out to breakfast. Um, he dropped them off at the gas station because they had run out of gas. And after they had filled up their canister and he was taking them back to their car, they pulled a gun on him. They took him. They tied him up. They put him in um, a sleeping bag and they stole his car. And you think, you know, this man, this innocent, was trying to help others out. 
But because these men were evil, because they were bent on sin, they hurt someone who was absolutely innocent and doing a good deed. It endangers those who depend on the one who is evil. It affects the quality of workmanship. It produces faulty or polluted product. It poison and affects the health and welfare of others. And it affects the next generation. We read in 2 Kings 23, 26, and 27, Josiah was affected. Jehoiakim was affected. 2 Kings 24, 1 through 4. Jeremiah talks about these far-reaching effects even during the reign of Zedekiah in Jeremiah 15, 1 through 4. I think of those who are living with the consequences of sin. There are still mines that are being found in certain fields across Europe that are maiming children that were planted by the Nazis. There are still poison gases from World War I that are affecting the quality of soil and the, therefore the houses and homes that are built on those places that are affecting the foods that are produced in those fields. Because people were bent on sin and evil. And then we know about the poisonous residue for certain factories that were built in the 1920s turn of the century that weren't thinking about what they were doing to the environment, to the wells and the water sources. And we have poisons. We have the breakdown of uh, the physical systems of people because... Nobody thought about the consequences of what they were doing. Thirdly, sin is evil because it's progressive. We're told that Manasseh got more and more wicked. He rebuilt the high places. He raised up the altars to Baal. He worshiped the host of heaven, consulted mediums, practiced witchcraft, made his children pass through the fire, put idolatrous altars in the court of the temple. Even evil is emboldened because it's not caught. I was reading that most of those in jail are repeat offenders. 95% are repeat offenders. And a thief will keep stealing until he gets arrested. A serial murderer will keep killing till he is caught. Evil is always pushing the limits. Instead of saying, well, I got by with that, I probably ought to stop my career. Evil says, wow, I got caught with that. Maybe I could try this and I could try that. Next, sin is evil because it numbs the senses. Where we read in 2 Kings 33.10 that Manasseh ignored the warning of the prophets. Sin hardens the heart. In fact, Paul talks about those who are seared with a hot iron. They can't feel anymore. Their hearts cannot feel. It deafens the ears. It stops the hearing. There are certain people that are beyond conviction. They no longer feel conviction. I heard Brian just um, probably a year ago when he was speaking in one of his services, and he was talking about the first time he sinned, that he can still remember crossing the line at about 12 or 13 years old. And I've talked to a lot of young girls who can remember the day that they violated their conscience. And after that, they can't remember anything. But they remember that first time. And then after that, they stopped feeling the conviction. 
You stop feeling the pain. There's a total desensitization to feelings because sin is numbing. In Ephesians 4.19, it says, past feelings, they have given themselves over to work all sorts of evil because you get past that feeling. In Ecclesiastes 8.11, Solomon said, because the sentence against evil work is not executed speedily, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Those who aren't caught, they set themselves in that way to do more and more evil. Sin is destructive on every level. It's not only polluting, it is destructive. We're told that Manasseh was taken captive. There was a hook in his mouth, bronze fetters on his legs, and he was moved to Babylon, 2 Kings 33, 11. The very nature of sin is destructive to the body. The Bible is a manual from our creator of how to live, how to get the most out of life, how to use the body for the ultimate good and benefit. Now, I bought a blow dryer the other day. Actually, I did last week. And my blow dryer comes with an instruction manual and it tells me do not use in water. To me, that seems like a given, but nevertheless, it told me just to make sure. Because if I try to use this in evil, <laughs> evil, if I try to use this in water, it'll turn lethal on me, won't it? It can, it can cause me to be electrocuted. But my dryer was created for good. It was created to beautify my hair. And if I used it the way I'm supposed to, it would. But I always like to do everything like within five minutes or less. And thus it shows. But that which was meant for my good... I need to do it according to the manual that tells me how to use it and how to get the best out of my blow dryer. Now, if I say, forget that manual, I hate manuals. How dare those blow dryer people try to tell me how to use the blow dryer? I bought it. I own it. I'm going to use it any way I want because it's in my house. If I want to use it in water, I'll use it in water. What's going to happen? It's, it's, One, it's going to break. And then I'll say, how dare those people give me a faulty dryer? It's all their fault, idiot. How bad is that to blame the the makers of the dryer when I used it in a way it was never meant to be used? Whose fault is that? Yours, right. It's my fault. Because I didn't use it according to the manual. God has given us the manual of how our lives are to be lived. He is our creator. He wired us. He created our systems. And he said, you want the most out of life? Because I've created you for abundant life. This is how you're to live. You live this way and you're going to live abundantly and your life will have beauty, but you live in rebellion to the manual and your life will turn lethal. That which was meant for good can be lethal if we do not follow the manual. Life becomes destructive. Sin destroys emotions. Think about Manasseh. There should be a natural affection of a father for a son. 
I know that Brian loves his son so much. You know, I just like to watch the way Brian loves our children. You know, he just has this thing where he spoils them. But that's okay, because I control the money for the most part. But I mean, he, he just melts. I, I was asking him to do something for me, and he goes, I'm meeting Brayden for coffee. And they have this discipleship every Friday morning with our youngest son. And I just love the way he loves his son. There's a natural affection. In fact, I think that some of my children actually resemble me. And Brian will go, no, they all look like me. You're <laughs> like, okay, fine. That's all right. His father does the same thing. All your children look like me. That's Grandpa Mike. And my father thought all my children looked like him. I think it's sweet. But there's this natural affection. Manasseh was void of that natural affection. We're told that he made his sons pass through the fire. There was something that was not connecting. Instead of protecting and preserving his children, he was putting his children at risk. He was jeopardizing their lives. Love is cheapened to the degree that it is unrecognizable because of sin. Because sin is about fulfilling lust and not about commitment or serving another. Relationships are almost impossible when sin enters because there's no trust, no loyalty, no truth. Why? Because sin is movement away from God. Sin also destroys mentally because we're not able to see the signs. Destruction ahead. And there's a lack of discernment. All of a sudden, good becomes evil, evil becomes good. And when those lines become blurred, the mental state loses all stability. Sin also lowers the defenses. We read that Assyria was able to attack and take Judah captive, again, taking Manasseh captive. During the reign of Hezekiah, they couldn't take Jerusalem. God intervened. God protected Jerusalem. 185,000 valiant Assyrians died in one night because God was protecting. God was the defense. But not only are the natural defenses lowered by sin, because sin allows dangerous people into your life, puts you in unsafe environments, gives you a high-risk lifestyle in high-risk locations, but your spiritual defenses are also gone. The closer you are to God, the safer you are. The further away that you move from God, the more vulnerable you are. You know, that's one reason that growing up, I did not want to sin. Because I was afraid of being without God. I, that feeling of I'm in sin and God is away from me right now scared me so bad. I had about two experiences like that. And I went running to God because of them. My favorite scripture is Isaiah 41, 13. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, fear not, I will help you. I want to keep that handhold on God's right hand. I do not want to let go. The further away, the more susceptible, the more vulnerable you are to attack. Sin 
also lowers the natural immunities of your body. Your body was created to withstand germs. That's why you've got the skin. The skin itself um, is a defense against germs. Uh, right after my dad's death, I had gone to the, the doctor because I had a suspicious mole that turned out to not be a, a mole at all, but turned out to be like a blood vessel thing that the guy says, well, you're getting old. Of course you've got these. Thank you so much for pointing that out. Here I thought I had melanoma and was dying, and instead I'm just aging. But they said, oh, you haven't had your tetanus shot. We need to give you your tetanus shot. The woman did not clean my arm properly. And so when she gave me my tetanus shot, it put the staff that is on the outside of my skin that was being defended by my skin, it put it inside my um, epidermis level, and it gave me cellulitis. And I thought, wow, that, I'm not reacting really well to that. And it kept growing and getting bigger and bigger. A friend of mine drew a circle around it. And she said, if it goes beyond this circle, you need to go to the doctor. It went way beyond that circle. I went to the doctor. And what did the doctor do? He drew a new circle. And he said, if it goes beyond this circle, you need to go to the hospital. They gave me antibiotics. They gave me steroids. Because my natural defenses have been violated by a needle. Sin lowers the physical defenses of our body. The body was created to withstand this, but sinful lifestyles are taking poison in the body, doing the very things that bring harmful elements into the body. Paul said that sexual sin is a sin against the body. Again, we've got the maker's manual and he told us how to live in monogamous relationships. And you violate that and your defenses will break down and you have no right to scream at the maker because you violated the manual. Sin is evil because it's rebellion against the creator and against his creation. We're told that Manasseh refused to worship the God of his father. He rebelled against God's instruction. And he, to worship the Lord only, even placing idols in the court of God's temple. He rebelled against the gifts God had given him, all the advantages that God had given him. Manasseh, this is the ultimate unthankfulness. Think about it. He was given a throne. He was given privilege. He was given protection, blessing, a kingdom, and influence. But he rebelled against the gifts of God. Moving on, why does God allow evil? You're saying, Cheryl, that's right. That's terrible. But why does God allow it? Have you looked at some of the things going on in the world and said, why God? Why? Well, and we're told that Manasseh had one of the longest reigns of any king. Yet Ammon, his son, only had two years. Why this discrepancy? Why did God let Manasseh get away with it for so long. I believe it's because God knew that Manasseh would come and repent in time. Second Peter 3.9 says, God is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is not long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to eternal life. He knew that Ammon would never respond to chastening, and he knew that Manasseh would. So why does God allow it to bring men to repentance? He's not 
slack concerning his promises, judgment will come. But he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. Number two, why does God allow it? He honors the choices of men. God in his righteousness must honor the choices of men. To not do so would to be a dictator. Though God tried to move Manasseh away from these choices, sending prophets, sending warnings, even allowing Manasseh to fall to his own um, to the uh, consequences of, of the choices he made. Thirdly, God allows it to reveal what is in the heart of men. If sin met an immediate response, nobody would sin, but they'd hold it in their heart. We've all heard of passive aggressive, right? Those people that just put it in their heart, put it in their heart, and then one day they explode or they, they do these other things. Like when I was little, I was passive aggressive. I was the youngest. I had no power. I had no strength. So this is what I did. I'm so ashamed to admit it, but I'm going to tell you. When my mom would hard boil eggs, she would write HB in pencil on the eggs that she hard boiled. When I got mad at somebody in my house, I would take a pencil and write HB on the eggs that weren't hard boiled. (laughs) We have like this confessing day that often happens when all the siblings grow up and you're together, you begin to confess the things that you did. And, you know, everyone thought I was just the baby of the family. You know, I'm 11 years um, younger than uh, one of my siblings, nine, seven. And so my brother Chuck said, that was you. I thought that was my brother. I was always getting so mad at him and taking it out on him. And it was you because everybody thought I was so innocent. (laughs) Brought up the true nature of 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 me. I was not innocent. And I could imitate my mother's HB so well on those raw eggs. But you know, if it wasn't, if, if man, if man, every time he sinned, got an immediate spanking, you wouldn't sin. You'd stop, but you'd hold it in and the evil would be there festering in the heart. But God does it to show that this is sin. This is what sin looks like. This is how sin behaves. And this is what is in you. You would never know the depths of depravity where evil goes if it was stopped immediately. We would probably think, God, you're just too hard on sin. Come on, just a little sin. But God wants us to know how wicked, how evil sin is. And the, and the, the end, the objective of sin, where it's leading. God uses evil, number four, to show men the folly of their choices. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is destruction. According to Romans 1, God will often let men have their way. He lets them have their way to show them, this is where your way leads. This is the end. This is what happens. Evil in man is man 
given over to his own desires and lust. We're all born with a sin nature, all of us, that we need to deny, that we need to mortify, all of us. But the current cultural teaching of our society is that every lust is justifiable and should be indulged. I'm just a material girl and I'm living in a material world. And I'm just doing material things. No. Take this to the level of driving. What happens on the road if everyone does what is right in their own sight? Personally, I hate red lights. I don't want to stop at a red light. Why should I stop at a red light? It makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't like it. I have to wait. You know, why shouldn't I be able to text why I drive on the freeway, why I change lanes? Why shouldn't I? Because if everyone does what is right in their own eyes, anarchy will ensue. We can see it on the freeways. We can see it on our roads. But we cannot see it when it comes to our own choices about morality. Five, God uses evil to showcase his goodness. Suddenly, when, when we begin to see evil getting a grip, getting more and more progressive, we see that there is a distinction between right and wrong. There are those right now in society saying there's no truth, there's no right or wrong, and yet they will condemn the Holocaust. I read of a man who came to Christ. He was a philosopher and a newspaper reporter, and he came to, he was an atheist during World War II, but he came to Jesus through World War II because he recognized the exceedingly wickedness of the Nazis. And when he saw that, he said, if I say that's evil, then there has to be a good because there is no standard by which I can condemn the actions of Hitler unless there is a standard of good. So there must be truth and there must be good. This is the time. Because, you know, people say, that's evil. Why is it evil? If you don't believe in right and wrong, why is this evil? But God uses evil to show, case, his goodness. That there is a standard. Six, Evil makes men long for righteousness and recognize the need and source. There is nothing like evil to make men long for good. Don't you find that when you read of the evil things that are going on, you read about that man that kidnapped those girls and kept them hostage for all those years. Don't you say, come quickly, Jesus. Come, set up your kingdom in Zion. Let righteousness go forth. Bring the nations to repentance. Please, please, please come quickly, Jesus. I have never, ever longed for heaven so much as I do right now for the righteous kingdom of Jesus to come. Six, evil brings men to the end of themselves. You know, sometimes it just has to run its course. 
men have to see in them, themselves what, where their choices have brought them. And it makes them come to the end of themselves, even as we see that it was not until Manasseh was living with the consequences of his choices that he called out to the Lord his God. And not until then was he willing to acknowledge that Yahweh was God. Not until he was in the grip of his own evil, what he had done to others was being done to him. Did he cry out for mercy? Did he repent? Did he change his way? Finally, evil serves as a lesson to the righteous. It is one of the best deterrents against sin is to see someone who is caught in the grip of evil. Manasseh became a typology of Israel. He was an example to all of Israel. Even as Israel was given the land, they were given all this privilege by God. They were given protection. They were given prestige. When they began to sin and turn away from God, they became more and more progressive in their sin until they were taken captive to Babylon. And there in captivity in Babylon, they repented of their sin. Their prayer was heard. They were emancipated from prison. They were returned under the reign of Cyrus to their own land. And they made godly reforms in Israel. So again, watching even evil becomes, God allows it that we might have an example of what not to do. You know, those examples of what not to do are as good as the examples of what to do, aren't they? I was talking to, um, what was Glinda? She was telling me about her um, daughter and her son. And her son, Mark, turned to his older sister, Sherry, and said, how have you always been so good? And she said, I watched you. And everything you did, I decided not to do. (laughs) That can be an example to us. Where is God when evil is happening? Where is God? Well, first of all, God is in heaven. And we're told God is always doing what is right. God is continuing to do what is right. And in heaven, he is actively pursuing man's repentance. He is raising up prophets. He's convicting the world of sin through the Holy Spirit, according to John 16, 8. And uh, this is Frederick Bruner's um, translation, that God is saying through the Holy Spirit, what is wrong is wrong, what is right is right, And Jesus' judgments will endure. Secondly, God is chastening and allowing chastening. That's what he is doing. He is allowing affliction and afflicting so that we will repent. Hebrews 12, 9 through 10 says, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. And that's what God did with Manasseh. He chastened him that he might be a partaker of God's holiness in the end. 
Thirdly, God is waiting for man to come to the end of themselves. We're told in Isaiah that God waits that he might be gracious. God allows the natural consequences of sin to take place, the price of sin, so men will see the exceedingly wickedness of sin. But he is waiting for men to call out to him so he can intervene, so he can hear, forgive, and set free, return, and restore. If God intervenes why men are in their wickedness, their heart becomes harder, and they just set themselves to do more wicked. We're told in the Psalms, That the wicked man thinks God does not see or God does not care or that he even has the approval of God. This is what would happen if God intervened too soon. But he has to stand back and he has to wait for us to want him to intervene. I think of those disciples caught in the storm. And what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. He's waiting for the disciples to wake him up and to call him into the storm before he intervenes. Because if he intervenes too soon, what will happen? The disciples will go, well, we fixed that one. We know what to do in storms. And when they come to other storms after Jesus is resurrected and in heaven, they will try to fix those storms themselves rather than seeking Jesus at the first cloud. So God waits that he might be gracious, that we might come to the end of ourselves. So finally, how are we as believers to respond to evil? Because evil is all around us, isn't it? So first of all, keep the standard of God. Keep the standard of God. No matter what society calls evil, what society calls good, God's standards have not changed and they will not change. Isaiah, who prophesied during the reign of Manasseh, wrote in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. There's a woe. There's a woe that's coming. You can only get a law. You can only get by You can only get by with these things for so long. Two, as believers, we need to know that the Bible is the ultimate guidebook to life. This is how we're supposed to live. You live this and you'll get the best out of life on earth. This is the manual. The standards among men are subject to change, and so we need the word of God that endures forever. God's word is incorruptible. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. 2 Peter tells us that all things that pertain to life and godliness are in this book. They're in the Bible. So that means that as believers in these evil days, we need to be in the word of God every day. Personal devotions. We need to be actively involved in Bible studies corporately, which you're here, so I'm preaching to the choir. And we need to fellowship. You're here. You go to your groups, which teach you all about fellowship. 
We need to hear each other's stories. We need to hear each other's warnings. We need to hear each other's lessons and insights in the word of God. As it says in Hebrews chapter something. It's either six or 10. It's not in my notes. That we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but so much the more as we see the day approaching. It's Hebrews chapter 10 just came to me, but not the verse. That's your problem. Know that God is at work. As believers know, no matter what is going on, God's got a plan. He always has a plan. I happen to know of a group that snuck into Iraq secretly, and there they begin to minister to some of the young women that have been defiled by the ISIS. I happen to know that many of the Christians in Egypt stood up and said, we are proud to be the mothers and fathers of martyrs. What glory, our sons are safe, never to be harmed by this world again, and they are glorified in heaven. They are under the throne of God right now in white robes saying, how long, O Lord, how long? God will use all Things for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Know this. We're told that God will use even the wrath of man for his glory. According to Nahum chapter 1. God will turn what Satan means for evil to good. As believers, we need to be ready to be used of God. Think of the many prophets who were raised up and called by God like Isaiah, like Jeremiah and others, to warn Manasseh and the nation of Judah. So God right now wants to raise up many prophets. He wants to use us to warn this generation. One of the obligations of the prophets in those days was also to pray and intercede for the king, and for the people. That's why when Hezekiah was confronted with the bad news from Assyria, he sent Hilkiah and Shibna. He sent them to the prophet Isaiah. Said, go to the prophet Isaiah. Later, next week, as, as we study Josiah this week, next week, you'll find that Josiah, when he was confronted with judgment, he sent the court recorder, he sent them to find a prophet to interpret what was going on. And Huldah, a woman, was raised up at that time to speak righteousness and warning to the kingdom of Judah. So what are we supposed to do? We are to be praying and interceding. This is our obligation. This is our privilege to begin to pray. Jesus in Luke 18, 1 told two parables to the end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Jeremiah um, said, if, God said to Jeremiah, if you've run with the footmen and you're weary, what are you going to do when it comes to running with the horses? Isaiah said, if your strength 
is drawn out in the day of battle, then your strength is little. We need to not faint when we see evil, but to become more extreme, more stirred up in our prayer life. Finally, as believers, remember, judgment is coming. Jesus will judge the entire earth, every single man and woman that has ever lived. He will judge. And those that are covered in Christ have already passed from judgment to life. We've already been judged. But those who have not accepted the gift of God through Jesus Christ will be judged. In Luke twenty-two fifty-three. When Jesus was being arrested, we know that Peter pulled out the sword and he started to chop off Malchus' ear. And I have to say, that is how I want to react to evil sometimes. What about you? You know, you're kind of startled by it. They, they woke you up from a good nap at Gethsemane. And so you pull out that sword and you start slashing away to whoever's nearby. And Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put away your sword. For he who takes up the sword will perish by the sword. And he said, this is their hour and the hour of darkness. I want you to know this. Evil has an hour, 60 minutes, whatever that looks like. It's got its time, but it's limited. It is limited. It can only go on so long. We're told that God put the borders on the ocean and said to the waves, you may come this far and no further. And that's what he says to evil. You can come this far and no further. You've got your time limit. You've got your limit in reach. But God has all eternity. And nothing Nothing escapes his hand. God says in Isaiah, my hand is not too short that I cannot save. But your sin has put a barrier up to my saving grace. Evil only has an hour, but God and righteousness will take all of eternity. We live in evil times. Our days are much like the days of Manasseh and Ammon. We have evil men in influential places. People's concept of good and evil is getting so confused. The quality of life is in jeopardy. Families are in jeopardy. Defenses are down on every level. Evil is progressing and even becoming more and more emboldened. But women of faith, instead of bemoaning the evil, it is time to seek the Lord until righteousness comes. It is time to pray. It is time to study the standards in God's word. It is time to volunteer for service. I want to end with um, this analogy that C.S. Lewis uses in Mere Christianity because I absolutely love it. It's so long that I am just going to tell you about it. But he likened believers to the French resistance. Now, the French resistance was a secret underground army that was resisting the Nazis in France. They were living in occupied territory. They were living under the oppressions of 
of the Nazis, these invaders, the Gestapo, evil men. And yet what they did is they huddled together or alone waiting for instructions from a wireless radio. And they were meeting with men of like passion, secretly advancing the kingdom of the allies and setting up roadblocks against the advance of evil. They were recruiting, recruiting as many as possible in the fight against the Nazis. They were saving as many as possible from destruction, even um, destroying train tracks and setting those Jews, those French Jews who were in the uh, train cars free and hiding them and, and getting them to safe places. They were waiting anxiously for the Allies to come and bring freedom, restoration, and joy back to France. So we are God's resistance. We're living in occupied territory right now. And sometimes we are under the oppressions of evil invaders. But we wait from instructions from a wireless radio. The word of God, the Holy Spirit speaking to us. And we meet together whenever we can with women of like passion to secretly advance the kingdom of God. We go out and we recruit as many as possible those who are not content with the oppression of the enemy, those who are also looking for freedom. We save as many as possible from destruction and we wait anxiously for Jesus Christ to come and bring freedom, restoration, and joy back to the earth. Yes, we are the Lord's resistance. Amen. Let's stand up. So yes, we live in an evil world, but the good news is Jesus is coming and righteousness will reign. I I just have one more story because I just came to my mind and we're so late already. Why not go for like three more hours? But um, Joey Baran, um, who many of you know as Pastor Joey was a professional surfer and years ago he took a, a, a speech class when he lived in Vista. And at this speech class, there was a young woman named Jennifer and Joey took the opportunity in speech class to give his testimony. Jennifer was an, an atheist. She was more of an agnostic. She just didn't know. And she walked up to Joey one day and she said, look, I am a biology major, and everything that I'm hearing in college is contradicting. But I know that men are polluting the earth. I know that it's getting more and more polluted. And, you know, we're destroying our ozone. We're destroying our soil. We're destroying our oceans. What is your God going to do about that? And Joey looked at her and he said, my God is sending his son, Jesus, back to earth to rule and reign and to destroy pollution and make everything the way it was supposed to be in the beginning. And she says, all right, I want to know that one, God. (laughs) Jennifer accepted the Jesus, ended up coming to Calvary Vista and ended up marrying her, her evangelist. (laughs) Jesus is coming again and he will turn wrong to right. And he will rule and reign. So you, daughters of the king, 
be ready for whatever he calls you to do. Let's pray. Lord, here are your daughters, here are your women. And while every eye is closed, I pray that everybody who wants to be part of the Lord's resistant army would raise their hand and say, I do. Hallelujah. So Lord, I pray that you would use us for glory, for your purposes in these evil days. Lord, let us not shirk, let us not be scared, but let us valiantly go forward under your instructions to save a generation. In Jesus' name, amen.